Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still, others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who are sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give, them, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they say, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also took, shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. May God bless the reading of his word. Please welcome Pastor Jeff. One scholar in his commentary on Nehemiah aptly said this, in the history of the church, 
We have seen that when the devil cannot destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was to join it. That's to say that if the devil could not destroy the people of God through external opposition, he would divide the people of God through internal conflict. And sometimes, as history and perhaps even our own experiences have shown, more damage is done when we lose sight of the gospel and when the attitude of us versus them penetrates into the walls of the church and seeps into the hearts of the people of God. The book of Nehemiah takes place at a time when when the people of Israel had returned from exile in Babylon. Nehemiah was this Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And he hears about the ruined states of the walls of Jerusalem. And he gets permission from Artaxerxes I, the king of Persia, to go and embark on this project to rebuild the walls. And what we'll find is that in in Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6, we read of opposition coming from this guy Sambalot and his companions. But in between these two chapters of chapter 4 and chapter 6 of external opposition stands our passage this morning, chapter 5. And this time, however, it's not actually external opposition that threatens the Jewish people and the completion of the rebuilding of this wall, but internal conflict. In our passage today, we're going to see two main things as we continue on. For those of you who are just joining us today, we've been going on in our our sermon series, Investing in Eternity, the Joy of Financial Stewardship. We're going to see two main things. First, we're going to look at the internal socioeconomic conflicts that the Jewish people face and how it relates to us. And second, we're going to look at Nehemiah's response and how he went about rectifying these internal conflicts that threatened their mission that threaten their unity as a people. And we're going to see that the passage that God, through his word, is ultimately calling us to identify those areas of injustice within the walls of the church to seek justice and to give generously. Seek justice and give generously. So let's, if if I invite you to turn back to our passage in Nehemiah, we're going to begin in these first five verses. We're going to see that injustices within threaten the unity of God's people and the continuation of their mission. And so what this meant for Nehemiah in his context was this, that internal socioeconomic conflicts threaten the unity of the Jewish people and the completion of their wall. By the time of Nehemiah 5, we've already seen that the building project for them in their context required an immense amount of human resources, not just for construction, but for protection too. So Nehemiah had said just a few verses earlier, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And so he was asking these people to not go home, but to actually stay in Jerusalem, not return to their villages, and work during the day and serve as protection at night. And so because of this, when you think about it, there's going to be a shortage of workers for the harvest. A shortage of workers meant less output. If they're uh, encountering a famine, it would mean even more, uh, even less income as well. And so the, the completion of the wall for them, of course, was an important thing. It was a, a symbolic thing. It was, for them, clear that it was part of the work and will of God, but it required an extraordinary amount of labor. And what we find in our passage now is that as a result, the people begin to cry out. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah as he's writing this, is very careful with his language. 
You see, this word outcry, it's, it's a hyperlink. It's as if you click on it, it takes you back, all the way back to Exodus, where the Egyptians are exploiting and oppressing the Israelites in slavery. And so when you read this, as Nehemiah's audience, what comes to mind is Exodus 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Same word there. Uh, I know their sufferings. But the surprising thing here is, is that the oppression is not coming from Egypt. It's not coming from King Artaxerxes, not from Purge. It's not coming from Sambalat or Tobiah or Geshem or these external opposers, as we saw in uh, you would see in uh, the preceding and succeeding chapters, but it's coming from their own Jewish brothers. It's their own flesh and blood, their own people. That is the cause of this injustice, this oppression. And so the text lays out for us three groups of people who are suffering from this social economic conflict. Laborers who are becoming destitute. You know, they have kids. They can't even afford to put food on the table. You have landowners in debt to buy food. They're mortgaging their land uh, just to fulfill basic necessity. Or can you imagine taking out a, a second mortgage on your home or downsizing your house, but you're not doing it to, to pay off your kid's tuition or, or because the property tax is too expensive, but you're taking on debt to put food on the table. And then you have a third group, landowners in debt to pay the king's taxes. So their, their life is so difficult that in order to pay taxes, they have to take out loans. And so if you're not getting the, the picture of the uh, seriousness of their situation, verse 5 hits at it hard by summarizing their predicament. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our own sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so later on, Nehemiah, as this, as this leader, comes in and brings these charges against the nobles and officials. I mean, you see, they were charging interest, and they were, rather than selling their brothers to the Gentile nations, their brothers were sold to them instead. And so there's exploitation and, and, uh, and oppression and justice, and it remained in-house. And I, I get that there are some things that you want to handle in-house, but injustice is not one of them. And so you have all these internal socioeconomic conflicts that are now threatening the unity of the people and the completion of their wall. And so these economic disparities come to light when everyone worked on the wall, but not everyone could afford it. And now those who couldn't afford it were being taken advantage of, and their cries came out against uh, their Jewish brothers. And so do you begin to see some of the disunity, some of the division that is taking root within the house of the Lord, within the people of God? Now we know, if you fast forward a couple of chapters, you know that eventually the wall will be completed in the next two chapters. But here in chapter 5, it won't happen not before these internal difficulties, these challenges are are rectified, are resolved. So Nehemiah's situation was this, that internal socioeconomic conflicts threatened the unity of the Jewish people and the completion of the wall. And so likewise for us today, we might consider that, that there might be some internal injustices that threaten the unity of the church, whether global, universal church, or local church, and, and the continuation of its mission. As I was 
reflecting and praying over this passage, it was, it was kind of hard to talk about Nehemiah's building project without thinking about our own church building expansion project. I don't think we're in the same exact situation, and so I think we need to be careful, good scholars and students of the word, to be careful where we draw the parallels and where we don't. Because, I don't know, it might be difficult to say that CBE is causing social economic injustices within our church and creating opportunities for one group of people to exploit another group of people, one group who can't afford it to, to exploit those who can't. That, that might seem a, a step too far, unless there's you know, a bunch of things that I'm not aware of and I'm ignorant of, which is possible, and I would rely on you as the church to, to point me uh, correctly. But, you know, at the same time, as we look at this story, this narrative, this lesson from Nehemiah and, and the things that, that they took, well, it does seem clear that building projects of all sorts require an immense amount of resources. Probably as we've been going through this this sermon series on stewardship. And we've covered or we've talked very highly uh, about, you know, it's about managing what God has given to us. These are the things that it requires, that this is the cost, our time, our tithes, that is our relationships, our temple, that is our body, our talents, how we serve, and especially, especially, especially our, our treasures. And because of this, projects of all sorts, these big endeavors, can create new challenges or even reveal long-standing ones that threaten the unity of the people of God and the continuation of its mission. Again, I don't know if I would go as far as to call it injustices. In our case, it depends what it is. And we would keep in mind that in, in Nehemiah, as well as for us, probably it's not on the project itself. The focus wasn't on that, whether it's good or bad, but it was on what the people of God do with all these externalities that arise out of it. For Nehemiah, in his context, the rebuilding of the Jerusalem wall lasted 52 days. And in that time, the rest of life didn't, didn't stand still. Nothing was paused for this rebuilding. And so diverting manpower from agriculture to architecture created for them problems of poverty, food shortage, social inequalities, and allowed, it created an opportunity for the people of God to treat each other poorly. Now, I don't think it was so much that, that this project or this rebuilding made them that way. It was the sinful nature, right, that, that saw an opportunity, a window to manifest itself in ways that divided the people of God. And Nehemiah had to address these issues even as they were moving forward. And if we're to look to Nehemiah 5, it would be important for us, a reminder for us as a church, especially for us, you know, myself and Pastor Pat and, and others as church leaders, to, a reminder for us to work on the body of Christ, even as we might continue to work on a building for the body of Christ. On a secondary level of application, we might not look at internal socioeconomic injustices, but we might point to other types of injustices within the church that threaten its unity and the continuation of its mission. You look at the amount of abuses of power that have come up in the news against women and children in the church by church leaders. 
whether that's the Southern Baptist Convention reported by the Houston Chronicle a few years ago, 20 years of abuse, 700 victims. Or more recently, the claims against the founder of the International House of Prayer. And so we see injustice happening across denominational lines. And even if this is not a social economic injustice like the one Nehemiah faced, it is an injustice and a serious one at that. And it's one that occurs within the walls of the church. And so when something as serious as that happens, the unity, the mission of the church is threatened. And a divided church is a crippled church. And nowhere is this perhaps more clearly seen than when we see a church split. I know some of you have experienced that in the past. You know when that happens, the church's mission is hindered greatly. Not because of some external opposition from some guy named Sambalad or Tobiah Geshem, but because of some internal injustice or conflict or challenge or division that arose between brothers and sisters in Christ. We do take hope, though, right, as believers in the gospel, that this is not the end. That the, it doesn't mean that the church cannot continue. God is sovereign. He can turn something that is evil and bad and make it for good, for his glory, for the good of his people. But you also recognize that when these challenges and these conflicts come up and we handle them poorly, when we lose sight of the gospel that breaks down walls and rather we build up these walls back up, it will do so at a great cost to our witness as the nations look on and they reason the rest of the world is so divided. Why would we want to be part of something that seems just as divided? Injustices within threaten the unity of God's people and the continuation of their mission. This was true for Nehemiah, the Jewish people, and it's true for us. But there is something that we can do about it. Nehemiah responds in two ways, and they kind of go hand in hand. And so the first is this, seek justice and fear God. Nehemiah executed biblical justice based on the fear of God. And so this word justice, when we hear and we read it in the, in the Hebrew word, it's the word mishpat. We tend to think of justice as punishing people for wrongdoing. And there's an aspect of justice, which is that, right? A thief or murderer is prosecuted and sentenced. Companies that prey on the weak are punished. But justice is not only that. Biblical justice is not only that. It's giving people what they are due as image bearers of God, whether that is punishment or provision. And so in Deuteronomy 18, God is talking about the provision for the Levitical priests. And he says that part of the offering sacrifice should be given to the priests as their due. Right? It is due to them. And that word due there is the same word for justice. It's mishpat. And so justice is not just rectifying the wrongdoing. That's part of it. But it's also giving people what they are due. That is their rights as image bearers of God. I know there's, there might be plenty of disagreement when you hone in on the details, and especially in public policy and other things, on the specifics of what these rights entail. But on a very basic level, we see Nehemiah executing this kind of biblical justice simply by rectifying the wrongdoing and giving the people what was their due. In this case, it was simply food, right? A, a means to live 
a basic necessity of life. And how did he go about doing this? He did three things, verses 10 to 11. They abandoned the practice of interest, which they were using to exploit one another. They returned their property, and they even returned their interest that was paid to them. And, and the text is very clear that the motivation for this, right, the reason why he does this is because he fears God. It's mentioned twice, verse 9 and verse 15. Right? The thing that you are doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God? He, he also fears God when he refrains from laying heavy burdens on the people. What does it mean to fear God? One, one pastor talks about reverent submission that leads to obedient trust and worship. And I think that's part of it. And I think we can add more nuance to it when we consider uh, uh, Nehemiah and Leviticus, right? If you fear God, not only do you trust and obey God, but you also extend kindness and integrity to those around you. And as the people of God do this, the nations, the hope is that the nations will look on and our neighbors will look at it and be drawn towards it. Seek justice and fear God. Nehemiah executed biblical justice based in the fear of God. And likewise for us today, injustices within must be met with biblical justice. When we look at these injustices, it must be coming from a place of fearing God. Right? We pursue justice because God is a just God. And this matters to him. Right? The sufferings of the oppressed matter to him. The wrongs being done to the poor and the disenfranchised, all of this matters to him. And it should matter to us as well. So how do we do this? Well, I think to begin with, we need to be aware first, right? Aware of where these things are, are occurring, where these injustices are, injustices are. Are we ourselves guilty of it? Right? I think what's amazing here is that Nehemiah as a leader here is holding himself accountable too in his charges. Maybe, maybe he wasn't as bad as or as guilty as the others, but he felt responsible for it nonetheless. Now, are there injustices within our own church? We might ask. We might reflect. And if so, what do we do about it? Like, do we sit idly by? by? Do we turn a blind eye? Or we confront it? Will we take initiative so that we might continue on to preserve the unity and the mission of the church Seek justice and fear God. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, I think you know, our church is pretty tame. You know, we're pretty tame, but I don't know if there's really any, like, that level of exploitation going on, socioeconomic or not. And I think, fortunately, Nehemiah doesn't just stop there, right? Not oppressing someone is not enough to do justice. So Nehemiah responds in a second way for us this morning. Seek justice and give generously. Right, so for Nehemiah, stopping the exploitation was not enough to do justice. I mean, sure, it helped right now that you didn't have the people of God taking advantage of each other. But that didn't actually solve the problem of the poor people not having enough food to eat and so this is what Nehemiah did himself. He exemplified sacrificial generosity over personal gain. 
He broke away from the pattern of previous governors and servants. Right? He could have taken this food allowance as a governor, but because of the heavy burdens on the people, he refrained from doing so. He gave up his rights as governor so that the people could have their rights as people. Moreover, verse 16, Nehemiah had no personal gain from the wall. Right? Ultimately, Nehemiah entertained all these people. The text says 150 people, men, Jews, officials, in addition to all the foreign diplomats that came. He entertained all of them at his own expense. Like this was sacrificial generosity. But for Nehemiah, generosity was just a part of being just. Being generous is part of being just. And I think this is the point that we really need to see today. It's easy for us to say, look, there's no overt injustice going on here in church. We're good. Let's move on. But if going back to the definition of mishpat, right, justice earlier, where justice is not just punishing people for wrongdoing, but giving people what they are due as image bearers of God, then generosity will be part of that justice. Job saw generosity as not optional charity, but required justice. He says in Job 29, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Being generous is being just. It's, it's the second part of this and in verses 6 to 13, Nehemiah rectified this internal social economic injustice by stopping the practice of interest and returning the land and money back to them. That didn't solve the problem, though, right? The Jewish people still had to forego working on the harvest to work on the wall. The problem of needing to provide food for your family, still existed. And so in verses 14 and 19, Nehemiah, in his generosity himself, made sure they could eat because of the heavy burdens on the people caused by this rebuilding of the wall. As we continue on in our sermon series on investing in the eternity, the joy of financial stewardship, we remember from God's word that generosity is not optional. It is biblical, and it's a fruit that we cultivate and we grow because of the Holy Spirit. When you look through the Bible, we see that God has a particular concern for the plight of the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. And these were the three groups of people most likely to be disenfranchised. And we could probably add a few more groups today, right? The, the homeless, the unemployed, the single parents, the elderly, the refugee, the migrant worker. These are all groups of people in our backyard, in our communities, in our city that need our generosity. Nehemiah was a governor at the time. He probably came from a really wealthy family. He saw himself as not exempt. Instead, he exemplified a generous justice and a just generosity. Particularly for those of us who consider ourselves more fortunate, blessed, those of us in positions of leadership, there's even a greater responsibility on us to seek justice, to give generously. 
You know, at our church, we have a number of funds that people can give to, all with different purposes. Right? You can see a list of some of those if you scan the QR code, go to our online giving form. One of those funds, though, is the, the Benevolence Fund. This fund functions as a way for us to practice justice, especially when we ourselves may not be fully aware of all the, you know, those among us who are hurting financially, those who are in our midst. And so on a practical level, we can actually contribute to this fund, knowing that it will get to those who need it, even if we may not know them personally or know their situation. But I would add that, that this is where it begins, not where it ends. In fact, I, I'd, I'd actually venture to say that this, this fund has really actually been blessed uh, by the generosity of you guys, our, our church members over these many years, but even during COVID too. And the challenge with this fund, this benevolence fund, is not so much filling it up. It's actually dispensing it out. When we've been talking about faithful stewardship, we don't want this money to just sit here for years. That wouldn't be very responsible for us, and we wouldn't be good stewards. And so I'm actually asking, I have a, an invitation, a call to you guys as members of this church. If you feel called to give, then give. Right? And we would rejoice over that. But even better, if you have need, or if you know of people in need, please reach out to Pastor Pat. He serves as one of the members of this Benevolence Fund Committee. Or even if you want to join and actively help and serve in stewarding this fund, Reach out to myself or Pastor Pat. You know, for some of us, we fall into the category of those who are only interested in alleviating eternal suffering through evangelism and missions. And so we deny that justice here and now. Other of us, others of us may fall into the category of those who seek to do justice but fail to proclaim Christ, only really showing that while we care about the here and now, that's all that we care about, and we don't really believe what the Bible says about the judgment and the salvation to come. As followers of Jesus, let us hold both of these together as we seek to be faithful and generous stewards of what God has given to us. Let us seek justice and give generously. We pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you, God, particularly on this day as we celebrate these baptisms that are about to happen, as a reminder that you sent your son who gave up his right so that we might have a right relationship with you, that you made a way for us to be reconciled, that you were so generous in your grace to us, and that we might take that, respond in kind to show generosity, to seek justice, to exemplify your love to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.